Hey, uh, last week we launched a new series called Stand, and uh, it's my privilege to teach today at the second week of that. But uh, I was really thrilled with the feedback that I got from Tanya Watson, uh, well, not feedback from Tanya Watson, feedback about Tanya Watson having uh, launched this series last week. Um, I was on leave, which uh, initially I'd planned on, on doing a race, the Fremantle Half Marathon, but a head cold uh, instead meant that my Sunday morning was uh, very glamorously spent um, on my couch with a box of Who Gives a Crap tissues, uh, blowing snot in all directions um, whilst watching the Hawaii Ironman Triathlon World Championships, which, unless you're interested in the sport, is not the world's greatest spectator sport. Swim, swim, swim. Cycle, cycle, cycle. Run, run, run. On your own. Riveting. 10 hours. Loved it. But I uh, heard great reports about Tanya teaching. Uh, this, is, this series is taken from the playbook of Daniel, who in history has become known for, for stories of courage and um, Last week, Tanya taught about standing out, that uh, certainly as followers of Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed, but in our current culture, we're actually the minority. And uh, that means that we have the opportunity to either just blend in, shrink back, live downstream, or we can live lives of courage and stand out in the way that God's called us to. And you know, Tanya did a great job of that. And, and I didn't even have to be here to know that Tanya did a great job teaching that message. We put our messages up on uh, our, our podcast. It's available in our app. It's available on, uh, on uh, most of the major podcatchers. And uh, we track the metrics so we can know how many people have downloaded and listened to each message. Now, the week before, I uh, taught a message called The Question That Changes Everything. And it was what I felt a very uh, important prophetic message for us as a church in, in the season we're in right now and the, and the shift that we need to make happen. And, and it, was, it was like a once in a year message. And uh, that had been up for a week in our podcast before Tanya taught last Sunday. And then within 24 hours, of Tanya's message stand out being live on our podcast. She'd actually overtaken the downloads of my message, prophetic message, once in a year message that had been up for a week already. She'd overtaken in 24 hours. The numbers don't lie, people. People liked her message more than mine. So I, so I took a screenshot of our, of our metrics, our podcast metrics, and I said that to Tanya. I said, sweetheart, great job, fantastic. Look, you've, you've leapfrogged my downloads in 24 hours that I'd had up for, for eight days now. And she sent back smiley face emoji. Uh, I think I'll stop downloading it now. <laughs> ah, I see how those Watsons play it. <laughs> Let me ask just some rhetorical questions. You don't have to answer out loud, but just answer for yourself. Those of you who are married, would you want a growing marriage in the next season of your life? Those of you who have who, who are parents, would you want to uh, possibly reduce any friction that you have uh, with your kids as they're growing up. Those of you who work in, in an office situation or a, or a workplace situation where you've got other colleagues around you, would, would you want to uh, reduce 
the potential for misunderstandings and, and conflict in the workplace. Uh, let me ask a church-related question. God declares very clearly that where there is unity, He'll command a blessing. And so here's a rhetorical question. Would you wanna be part of a church that God has commanded a blessing on? I.e. one that's already living together in, in unity. Um, if you answered yes to any one or more of those questions, parents, spouses, workplace, church life, uh, then I'm glad you're here this morning and you're gonna be glad you're here this morning because I'm teaching today's topic. The message is called Stand Up. I'm teaching on confrontation. Dun, 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 dun. Which if you've been on the receiving end of poorly handled confrontation, you know it ain't any fun. It ain't any fun in a marriage. It ain't any fun in a family setting. It ain't any fun in a workplace and it ain't any fun in church life. And so I wanna take uh, this next uh, 30 minutes together this morning to teach some lessons that I've learned about confrontation because I've actually had to, to, to really journey in this area of confrontation. I grew up um, in, a, in a British uh, blooded household. My, my, both sets of grandparents were, were, were British born. And uh, if you don't understand um, some of the prevailing British culture, the, the prevailing British culture is that you don't do confrontation. You, you, just, you just, you do avoidance. You, you do sweep it under the carpet. Um, I was reminded of this uh, a few years ago, Louis and I were in the UK. I was preaching at a church just about an hour south of London and was preaching on the, Saturday, on the Sunday, but on the Saturday we were there and uh, the vicar, it's not really what he was, uh, the leader of the church, a guy named Anthony, buddy of mine, uh, his son was playing soccer on the Saturday. So we decided we'll go along and, and support him. And so we're standing on the sidelines of this soccer field in England uh, with all the other parents. And uh, you guys know the whole ugly parent syndrome and you know, abuse the refs and all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's just what you do, right? Uh, no, not, not in jolly old England, an hour south of London, you don't. We're standing on the sidelines and, uh, and, and a couple of the players go past with the ball and, and one of them tackles the other one and, and, uh, and the referee uh, didn't call, you know, fouled him. The referee didn't call the foul. And the British gentleman next to us his version of trash talking the referee was to mumble under his breath so the referee couldn't hear him because that would not be polite. Mm. But I, could, I was ne next to him, I heard him, mm. really does make the old blood boil. <laughs> I'm like, that's it? <laughs> that's the best you got? So like, yes, anything more than that would have not have been very British, right, Peter? True, exactly. So I grew up with, with that as my family of origin. And, and that's actually one extreme when it comes to confrontation, avoidance, okay? And, 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 and you, you might think that that's a good play. I can tell you that avoiding confrontation is incredibly destructive. It will erode you from the inside out. And you might think that the issues uh, resolve because it's been swept under the carpet. No, it's not. And, and things have a habit of building up and accumulating like residue on the inside of people's hearts and, and, and when it comes to relationships. So 
When I got into my 20s, I thought I'd swing the pendulum the other way. And I went on a rampage. I spent a decade of my life tearing anybody and anything to shreds if I didn't like it. Um, it, it, it nearly cost me my marriage from, from habitually tearing Louis to shreds. Uh, and she's a, she's a tough nut. I mean, she's Italian and she's got an opinion. And, uh, but I used to try and bully her for five years um, in church leadership roles. If people weren't doing what I wanted them to do at the standard that I wanted them to do it, I would just tear them to pieces. So I swung the pendulum the other way and guess what? That didn't work very well either. And, and that was also destructive. And, and now, now that's the one that gets the most airplay the confrontation that's ugly and aggressive and bullying. And so that's actually what I wanna spend time teaching on today. Because I can tell you now, at the ripe young age of 47 and 11 twelfths, that, that I am not perfect in this area of, of confrontation, but I have come a long, long, long way. And what you need to understand is I didn't just fall backwards into being better at confrontation but instead I had to learn some stuff and I had to work at it and apply it consistently over a long, long, long period of time to get even to where I am today, which of course there's still room for improvement. So let's drill into that and, uh, and take the, the perspective from a chapter in the life of Daniel. So if you've got your Elevate app, Renati has it on her home screen. Good girl, Renati. How good's Renati, by the way? Come on, give it up. She's awesome. Um, open your Elevate app, tap the Bible section. It'll take you to Daniel chapter four. Now, last week, Tanya taught from Daniel chapter one. I know many of you have joined me in reading through uh, the various uh, chapters as they go. We're gonna skip across chapter two and chapter three. Some of you read them this week, I know. And we're gonna uh, pick things up in Daniel chapter four. Now, the backstory, as we pick it up in Daniel chapter four, it involves uh, two main characters, the king, Whose, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar, okay? I'll just call him Nebs. And, and Daniel, I'll call him Daniel. Um, Nebs had, had a dream one night. Now it was described as a dream, okay? The, the writer of the book of Daniel describes it as a dream, but actually in reality, it, it's what we would call a nightmare, which is a type of dream, but not a good dream, okay? It, it was a nightmare and, and it, was a, it was a visual dream. It was a, it was a metaphorical dream, this, this thing. And, 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 and Nebs couldn't sleep, okay? Now, Nebs was not a good man. In fact, it would be impossible to put into words just how evil uh, Nebs was. But to give you some context, Saddam Hussein, true story, thought himself to be King Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated. And he modelled his pattern of life and leadership on King Nebuchadnezzar. So whilst we don't have optics on Nebs, many of us have optics on the, the, the destructive, rampaging life of Saddam Hussein. That's the sort of guy we're dealing with, okay? Who was, who was the ruler over Babylon. And he had this dream. And, and the dream... When he had, he couldn't sleep. So he called in his dream interpreters and, he, and his magicians and he wanted them to, to, to be able to tell him what this dream meant. Now, in chapter four, I'll just give you the, 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 the bullet points of, of the dream. Um, 
it went, it went like this, that, that, that he's, he's lying in bed and he sees a picture of a tree. And this tree comes up out of the ground and grows in such majesty that it touched the skies. And, 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 and the canopy was so great that you could see it from all four corners of the world is how he described it. And, and, and the tree provided shade for the, for the animals and, and fruit for the people. It was this most majestic tree until a holy person from heaven was sent and that holy person from heaven came and spoke over the tree, that that tree was gonna be cut down, that, the, that those branches were gonna be removed, that, that, the, that the tree was gonna be left as a stump. It was gonna have to exist with the animals. It was gonna have to be covered with the dew and, and exposed to all of the, 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 the terrible circumstances. And that that would continue for seven years, seven repeated years. Now, that was the dream. Nebs called in his interpreters and his magicians and asked them if they could interpret it. Now, you read the dream, read the whole thing. A second grader could have interpreted it. It wasn't very, uh, very cryptic. And yet, the writer of the book of Daniel in chapter four records that Neb's interpreters couldn't interpret the dream. But you read it, you'll be able to interpret it, even not having been there. What's interesting to me though, is that some other versions of the Bible, they don't say that his interpreters couldn't interpret the dream. They say that his interpreters wouldn't interpret the dream. And that'll come as no surprise to you if I tell you what happened and is recorded in chapter two. What's recorded in chapter two is Nebs had a dream back then and he asked his magicians and interpreters to come in and interpret that dream and they couldn't. So he rounded them all up, including Daniel and his homeboys and were, and were marching them off to be executed when thankfully at that time, Daniel intervened. So, so this was how Nebs treated his own magicians and interpreters if they couldn't interpret the dream accurately. So we come to chapter four and they know that if they get this wrong, that the threat of death is imminent. And so whilst it may be that they couldn't interpret the dream, as I said, some other writers made the point that they wouldn't interpret the dream. And so the king sent for Daniel. Okay. Told Daniel the dream. Finished telling Daniel the dream. And he said, so what does it mean? Now, remember at this very moment in history, if Daniel gets this wrong, it's potential that he's gonna be killed by the king. And so he could have backed off. He could have told the king, I don't do interpretation anymore, retired, moved to Florida. He, but, but he stood up and, and he did what the king asked him to do. In, chapter 20, in verse 22, he said, O king, you are that tree. You've grown great and strong and your royal majesty reaches sky high and your sovereign rule, it stretches to the four corners of the world. It's not this dream. I could have told him this. It means that the high God has sentenced my master, the king, 
You'll be driven away from human company and live with the wild animals. You'll graze on grass like an ox. You'll be soaked in heaven's dew. This will go on for seven years and you'll learn, you'll learn that the high God rules over human kingdoms and that He arranges all kingdom affairs. The part about the tree stump and roots being left means that your kingdom will still be there for you after you learn that it's heaven that runs things. Now at this point, Daniel's done his job. The brief from the king was interpret my dream. Daniel's now interpreted his dream. That's the end of the job. He could have walked out, no problem. But Daniel being Daniel, living a life of courage, decided he was gonna stand up and take things one step further, take the, the warning one step further that he was actually going to confront the king and in doing so, risk his life. Now, hold that thought. Whether Daniel knew this or not, whether he'd passed Psych 101 or not, I don't know. But there's three critical components for healthy confrontation. Remember those two words, healthy confrontation. Because it's quite possible that some of you have never put the words healthy and confrontation together in the same sentence. There is such a thing as healthy confrontation, but to, 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 to do it, it requires three major components. The first one, and the thing that the whole uh, healthy confrontation is built on is built on trust. So Daniel last week, Tanya was teaching about him. You can find the story in chapter one. He was about 15 years old back then. Now at this point in the story, he's probably in his mid 40s. And what had happened when he interpreted a dream for Nebs previously, Nebs had actually promoted him to be the governor of, of, of Babylon, kind of like a 2IC kind of deal. And they'd lived in this high level of trust relationship for several decades prior to this moment in history where Daniel interpreted this dream for Nebs. So trust was already there. Daniel wasn't walking in as a guy who was necessarily, uh, uh, it wasn't a stranger to Nebs. He wasn't an enemy of Neb's and, and typically he wasn't a threat for Neb's. In fact, he was running things on Neb's behalf. So, so Daniel knew that even to take the next step to, to, to confront Neb's possibly wasn't going to be a life-threatening situation because they'd established trust over decades. Trust is the platform of every healthy relationship. If trust is broken, that relationship can turn septic in a second. And unless that trust is restored, it's very difficult to repair that relationship over time. Trust is something that we build day after day, decision after decision, word after word, action after action. And, and, and if you are living a life that is trustworthy over decades, then you've got a solid platform from which it's not necessarily gonna be life-threatening or relationship-threatening to confront someone else. You, you build that platform of trust by being someone who does what they say they're gonna do consistently. You build a relationship of trust with people by speaking words of life to them and about them. You build a platform of trust by, by leaping 
to people's defence when other people are speaking poorly of them and not joining in the sheeple approach and, and criticising them as well. And over time, if you're building a platform of trust, that is one critical factor that you can operate from that'll help you move towards healthy confrontation in your relationships. But trust alone isn't enough. When you go to confront, your motive matters. David made his motive very clear at this point. He just finished interpreting the dream and then he said, so King, take my advice. He's about to reveal his motive. Make a clean break with your sins and start living for others. Quit your wicked life and look after the needs of the down and out. Then you'll continue to have a good life. David, I mean, what's his name? Daniel. Oh, Danny boy. Danny, Daniel, Daniel made it known to the king that, that his motive had nothing to do with him that he wasn't confronting the king for any self-serving, self-seeking motives, but he wanted better for the people of Babylon and he wanted better for the king. And he made that clear up front, his motives clear. A common mistake I mentioned before that, that I came out of my uh, overly polite British family of origin setting and, and leapt into a highly uh, rampaging uh, overcorrection. And that this is what we often associated with confrontation. Um, often people that only experience or, or try to deliver confrontation from this side of things, their motive is about being right and showing you that they're right and showing you that their ways are right and showing you, and, and, and in doing so, making sure you understand that you're not right, that you're wrong. And, and Daniel didn't take that approach at all. He, he was wise enough to, to not make this about, about who is right, but about things becoming right. That, that there was an oppressed people living under the rule of the king and that the king is the only one with the power, but he has the opportunity to make things right. And in doing so, he can make his own life right and ultimately get right with God. That motive changes everything. In fact, if I was to boil it down as to what David's motive was in, in, in saying these very things to the king, I, I'd say his motive was that of restoration that Daniel had a picture of how God would have wanted things to be all along, but the king was turning them upside down and, and, and Daniel was confronting the king to say, restoration can come of this. The people's lives can be better and your life can be better, but it's gonna require some changes. Now, there's two circles. Let's go, go, go back to the two circles. Um, trust, and motive. Now, those of you that are geeky math gurus, you'll know that this is a Venn diagram. Who knew that? 
Venn diagram, very good, very good. But you also know that if this was a true Venn diagram that only had two circles, they'd be side by side overlapping. But the fact that they're one on top, one the bottom left means there's a third, Peter's, you're British. Um, yes, the third, Peter, when you speak under your breath, it really does make the old blood boil. Um, just kidding. The third critical ingredient is your approach. See, you can have a high level of trust. You can come at someone with the right motive, but if you don't have the skill, if your approach is wrong, it will actually undermine the other two. It'll actually erode the trust and it'll actually undermine your motive. And you'll find yourself having confronted that person with, with, with high levels of trust and the right motive, you find yourself saying to them, but, but, but that's not what I meant. And they say, yeah, but that's what you said. And you realise, no, oh, I said it wrong. That's skill or lack of skill. Oh, you, you just, you're just here to, to push me around. Question your motive because you've come at this with, with the wrong skill set. You've come at this uh, red hot when, when there was a, a better way to approach this. David, he could have said to the king, buddy, you're about to get what you deserve. Sucked in. Which would have been true, but would not have been very skillful. You know what, David, before all the things I just read out, let me back it up to verse 19. This is how he led, before he started interpreting the dream, this was his opening sentence. I wish this dream was about your enemies. I, 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 King, I love you. I've been serving you as your governor for, for three, four decades now. And, and this thing you told me, it, it's, it's really bad. It's really disturbing. And, 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 and I wish it wasn't about you, but I'm, but I'm about to tell you, cause you asked me to, that it is about you, but I wish it wasn't. That's a pretty good lead for what he was about to tell the king. I, I wish it was about your enemies, but that's not my decision to make. That was skill. Remember a number of years ago, um, I was part of the leadership at, at Riverview Church and we, um, the leadership team, we subscribed to the leadership cassette tape of the month club from a church in Chicago called Willow Creek. And I remember walking around one day with my Sony Walkman attached to my belt and my yellow headphones on looking Japanese chic, I might say. And listen to Bill Hybels, who, who led and still leads that church, talking about how his leadership team kept getting stuck when it came to confrontation. And, and that, that, that they knew that among their leadership team was an incredibly strong platform of trust. So that wasn't the issue for them. And yet they kept, Biting heads. And, and, and they knew that their motives were similar. Their motives were to see God's kingdom built through, through the local church. So, so, so that wasn't the problem. And they, and they boiled it down as the problem is they hadn't, as a leadership team, developed a skill set that would allow them to confront one another in a healthy way. And so they actually came up with some rules of engagement as a leadership team that, that when there was things that, were, that required some confrontation that you wouldn't and couldn't and shouldn't sweep under the carpet, that they developed some rules of engagement. 
some skills that, that wouldn't erode trust and undermine their motive. One of them, and I've taught this to our team multiple times, I use it myself all the time, is to start with, well, actually, one of the biggest wrestles I had actually leading up to teaching this week was whether to call this confrontation because just by calling it confrontation can send some people into a tailspin. Um, I actually prefer to, to, to come at it from the point of view of seeking clarification, that there's a misunderstanding between us. Something's happened and it's caused a misunderstanding. So, so, so I want to seek some clarification because I, I don't want our relationship to, to suffer from this. And so I've stolen from the Willow Creek playbook. They open with, when it just help me understand. They simply say, help me understand, dot, dot, dot. Help me understand. Look, when you did that, I, I, I don't know why I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna judge, I'm not gonna guess. I, 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 I wanna know. I, I need some clarity. Would you help me understand what your motive was? Would you help me understand why you did that? And, and Bill Hybels talked about that. And, and there's, a, there's a list of, of things as well in addition to that, was a game changer at the highest level of what is one of America's most influential churches. It's been a game changer uh, for me as a leader. It's been a game changer in my marriage uh, for Louis and myself. Um, we went on to develop some of our own rules of engagement for our marriage. So married people, this is some of Louis and my rules for engagement. Having done this the wrong way for many years, um, Because we, we used to approach clarification like a paintball skirmish. <laughs> gotcha. And, and, and whoever ends up with the most paintballs on them exploded lying in the corner, you lost and I won. And, 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 and we had to realise we're on the same team. So, so why are we making this about who won and who lost? About who's right and who's wrong? We're on the same team. We're on the same paper team. And, and so we had to develop some skills around the trust and, and our motives. Um, one of those is when we are having one of our seeking clarification, gentle conversations, is we don't use the term, you always... Or you never. I'm not going to ask you if someone's ever said that to you because it could be the person sitting next to you and this could get very, very ugly very, very quickly. But we used to say that to each other a lot. Well, you always. Well, you never. And look, it wasn't true. And we developed the skill to say we will pinpoint a particular specific incident because it's actually, that's the only thing you can learn from. Because you say, you always, all right, well, I wanna get better at this. Give me some specifics. All the time. Like, what? I can't learn from that. I need a case study. I'm happy to be the case study, but, but let's dial it in, shall we? So we, 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 we don't do that. We don't do you always. We don't do you never. Um, 
we, I'm just, I'm, I've got my, I'm reading through our rules, there's quite a lot. Um, <laughs> we, we had a lot of things to, to fix. Um, we, we don't any longer say, you make me feel this way. You did that and that makes me feel this way. Because ultimately we choose our response in any situation. So, so projecting how you feel on someone else is, is, is irresponsible and it's actually not helpful. But, but someone's actions towards you can trigger some things in you, that's, that's true. And some things you don't want to have to kind of fend off, that's true. So our rules of engagement shifted to, back to the other one, something specific. Honey, when you said that particular thing to me, I'm not sure if you're aware of it. I'm not suggesting you meant this, but, but I came away struggling, feeling this way. Can we talk about that? How maybe if instead of that, you maybe have come at it from this angle, that would have been better for us. You'll, you'll be amazed to hear that this sort of stuff has helped. Who knew? We did three sessions of pre-marriage counselling. I mean, the fact that we had any problems is, is a mystery to me after three one-hour sessions. <laughs> three one-hour sessions. Spent, spent 3,000 hours preparing for the wedding, but uh, the marriage, it'll surely take care of itself. Yeah, good one. And, and this is one, one more that I'll, that I'll throw out there as well on our rules of engagement. Um, don't come at your spouse with a list. Just, just, just choose one thing. Just one. Take a few days, then pull up the second one. But don't, don't, don't come at them with a list. Honey, there's some things, plural, we need to talk about. You say that to a man, it's the game over. Because we, we'll do two things. We'll either run away from your list or we'll come back at you with our list. And then it becomes a list measuring competition. And that don't work. It, so don't come at your spouse with a list and don't defend yourself with your list. Um, anyway, is that helpful for anybody? I'll, I'll give you one final thought as well. Um, when we stand up, when God calls us to stand up, we're actually not responsible for the outcome. We're only responsible to do as best job as we can to having built trust, come at things with the right motive and, and develop a skill set that will see this clarification process go a lot smoother, have less friction. Because Daniel, after he did all that he did, Nebs ignored him anyway. And Nebs went on to do more of what he'd already been doing and guess what, spent seven years outside having had his kingdom almost completely destroyed before after seven years, he realised, oh yeah, if only I'd listened to God in the first place and Daniel's interpretation in the first place. 
that wasn't Daniel's responsibility. Daniel had done what he needed to do in this. And knowing that is incredibly freeing. You won't have 100% success rate standing up for the things of God, even when he calls you to. Hey, let me uh, ask one final question. And it's a question we ask every week and, and, and we say it. It's the most important question we ask every week. It's a question that, that simply whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus. And if you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, if you've not yet made a decision to follow Him, then right here, right now, we're gonna give you the opportunity to make a decision and to say, yes, Jesus, I wanna follow you. And, and all I want you to do in a moment for those that need to say yes to following Him is just to get you to put your hand up and you're showing Him, hey, that's me this morning. I wanna follow you, Jesus. And when I see a hand, you put it down, we're just gonna pray. So as I look around our auditorium, just as we finish, you have not yet made a decision to say yes to following Jesus. Just put your hand up now. And when I see your hand, you can put it down. And then we'll pray.